You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 5 this morning. We have a lot of scripture to read. I want you to bear with me. We're going to work our way through it. But before we get there, I want to start by giving us some type of reference point because today we're talking about the first temple of Israel. The temple that Solomon built, we'll discuss it here in a moment, roughly around the year 966 B.C. And I don't know how you think when you hear temple, maybe you, like me, think about the second temple, Herod's temple, the great temple. It was ginormous. It was unbelievable. The architectural work there, was it would blow your mind. Maybe that's where you go. But this morning we're talking about the first temple. And so I want to give you some kind of reference point as we talk about the temple itself, the inside of it, and what Solomon does with this temple. So the temple, the first temple, was roughly 90 feet long. Some of you are thinking, that doesn't help me at all. I, I know. But if you can envision now the back of the platform all the way to the washrooms. Okay, are you getting an idea there? About 90 feet long, the first temple. It was 30 feet wide. Okay, so if you're with me so far, from that wall to about the center of our church. So, from here to the back, from here to here, and then roughly... 45 feet high, and and I don't know, I think these ceilings are 25. Steve, do you know how high these ceilings are? 30? Does anyone know? Oh, 24, I'm sorry. (laughs) They're not 25, but they are 24. (laughs) Leave it to a carpenter. Measure twice, cut once, I get it. So, roughly two times the size of our ceiling in height. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, and and that's the temple proper. That's that's just the temple, not the uh, storage rooms on the side, but that's the, the size of it. Is anyone surprised at that? I am. I think that's terribly small. If you're asking me, which you weren't, but I thought I'd answer. It just seemed kind of small. But I think as we read now the text, you'll understand, although it might have been small in size, this temple was magnificent. So let's look together at 1 Kings chapter 5 now with this reference point in mind, starting at verse number 1. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, 
I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. Now therefore, command thou that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint, for thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah, this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over his great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. Jump down to verse number 12. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they too made a league together. Jump down to verse 17. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them and the stones' quarters, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. Chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass... In the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And here are the measurements we just talked about. And the house which Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits, the breadth thereof 20 cubits, and the height thereof 30 cubits. Jump down to verse number 7. And the house, when it was in the building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. Jump down to verse 21. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, and he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. Jump down to verse number 28. And he overlaid the cherubims with gold. Jump down to verse number 30. And the floor of the house... He overlaid with gold within and without. Verse 37. In the fourth year was a foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. And according to all the fashion of it, so was he seven years in the building of it. This is the word of the Lord. Aren't you excited about the temple? And and there's more to come. We're going to go into great detail in the next few chapters about what's inside and how it was built and the measurements of the temple. But the story this morning begins with a Gentile king. His name is Hiram. 
He is a Sidonian, a Phoenician. And they are famous for their expertise in lumber. Right? So Hiram, if you can think about it this morning, is like Bob the Builder. You guys remember Bob the Builder? If you had small children way back when. Can we fix it or can we build it? Yes, we can. And this is Hiram. And he was the contractor that would promise you the world. Sometimes contractors do that. They promise you the world. But Hiram could deliver. He was that good with cedar and with fur. And the Bible says that Hiram was ever a lover of David. This Gentile king, this Phoenician, knew of David, knew of David's kingdom, knew of David's life, knew of David's God, and the Bible says that this Gentile king was ever a lover of David. And so he sends servants to congratulate Solomon, because Solomon's next in line. And Solomon sends back this request, and he says, listen, you know my father David had lots of war. You know now we have peace. And now in my heart, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Solomon says to Hiram, I want you to help me. Because everybody knows that no one does it better than the Sidonians. When we were kids, my mom at a point in our life was raising three boys on her own. And in the summertime, she'd work a job. And so we were responsible at home for our chores, cleaning up the house, and taking care of our own lunches and sometimes our own dinners. And almost every day for lunch, my youngest brother and I would say, Scotty, you make the best sandwiches in the world. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't know how you do it. There's something about that, that we had Millbrook bread. I don't know if it's old, white, cheap bread, soft. It's something about that bread and how you put the bologna on there and how you just spread that ketchup just right. And Scotty, I don't know what it is. We could make our own lunches, but you make the best sandwiches. And do you know something? My brother fell for that all the time. (laughs) All the time. Making sandwiches all summer long because he was the best at it. And when Hiram hears this from Solomon, I'm not sure how much was just a play or a ploy, but the truth is, Hiram was the best. And Solomon says, I want you to help me build this house. And Hiram hears it, and he rejoices greatly. Greatly. And then he responds by blessing the Lord. Remember, this is a Gentile king. And I think in the beginning of this story, we get a little glimpse of God's purpose and plan for his people. Do you know why God chose Israel? Not because they were great, not because they were strong, not because they were big and mighty. That wasn't the case. He chose them because they were weak. And yet in that choosing, his plan was this, that through his people, his name would be made great. And now here comes Solomon, and we see the covenants of God coming to fruition, where there's peace in the land. Every man's under his fig tree and his vine. They dwell in safety. And now we look around, and Gentile kings are coming to the knowledge of the Savior, Jehovah. And that was the way it was supposed to be. 
Unfortunately, Israel failed. But that was God's plan. That through a people, my reputation could be great. And we see that beginning here with Hiram. So we have a Gentile king. The next thing I want you to notice is giant rocks. The Bible tells us that they quarried out rocks, which was a huge undertaking. Remember, we're not talking about modern-day earth movers and heavy machinery and big equipment. We're talking about laying the foundation with foundational stones that will cover 90 by 30. That's a huge undertaking. And what I find interesting is, is that as they do this, they don't do this inside the temple. The Bible says, as they quarry these rocks, as they fell the trees, as they work on this timber, as they chisel away, they don't do it in the temple. They do it outside of the temple. How many folks, you've been on a construction site before? Can I see your hands? Construction sites are always noisy. They're they're always noisy. If you're not hearing a saw, a hammer, right, a nail gun, the boss screaming at someone, it's it's noisy. And even if if you have the painters in, there's someone playing music, or heaven forbid, there's someone whistling. Some of us, we're not good with silence, are we? Makes us a little uncomfortable. It's funny, Kim was in the car the other day, and she was driving. She came home and said, Rick, every time I get in the car, when you're in the car, the radio is always on. Just like that. Music. (laughs) The radio is always on. And the truth is, I am always making noise. I I mean, I, I came in the other day, I came through the garage, and Kim said, who are you talking to? Uh... A really smart guy. (laughs) Or dad noises, like, I don't know, just noises. And here is this picture now of this great undertaking. And, And you really need to imagine this. That the hammer, the chisel, the scraping, the sanding is done. And they come into this temple, and not one tool is heard. Everything is cut perfectly and put into place. I have to tell you, I'm not a contractor. I've been around enough. That blows my mind. You talk about measuring twice and cutting once. The stuff was ready, and the noise and the scraping and the pounding and all of it was done before it ever got into the temple. And I have to tell you, it must have been this quiet And it's working just in reverence of the God of heaven. That Solomon's plan was, I'm going to build this great temple, but in the process, we are going to show reverence to the God of heaven. All the hammering and the nailing is done outside of this complex. And finally, I want you to see, don't get excited. I say finally, we're not ending anytime soon. It's hard to be out of the pulpit for a week. I have 13 pages of notes. Uh, Gold. Gold. It's everywhere. Um, 
you know, there are, there are certain items that I guess it's like, yeah, it's okay, it's just... Okay, it's just water and the sprinkler, let it go, let it run, whatever. When we were kids, gas was that way. Oh, gas is like, I don't know, 50 cents a gallon when I was a kid, maybe. Ah, pour it all over the place, who cares, it's gasoline. Didn't matter, right? But there's some other items that that's not the case. I mean, they're valuable. In, In my house, one of the things that are valuable that you don't waste is steak sauce. Right? Steak sauce is not ketchup. You don't just take that stuff and start pouring it all out. You just have to, you have to ration that stuff. You get a little bit here, and you get a little bit here, and, and you better finish that off your plate, because that is not going in the dishwasher. It's steak sauce. We actually have one son who comes over. I won't name his name, but he comes over, and he goes through our refrigerator. You know what he takes? He doesn't take the ketchup. He takes the steak sauce. Why? Because it's expensive. And that cheap boy doesn't want to pay for anything. (laughs) And here's Solomon, and here's what he's saying as they're building this place. Hey, throw gold on that. Hey, the cherubim, cover them in gold. Ah, the beams, cover them. Oh, the floor, the 90 by 30 floor, cover it with gold. Now, think with me. That little picture that we have in our minds of a 90 by 30 by 45, all of a sudden now, everything, everything covered in gold. I was curious as I read this, and I thought, okay, what would be the equivalent, the price and the value of that today? And here's what I found. I found that just the gold in Solomon's temple, in today's value, what we just discussed here, would be about the price of $194 billion. Can you even imagine that? $194 billion. We, we, we know as believers there are things that um, are wasteful. Right? That there's, there are indulgences in life that are not only wasteful but sinful. Right? There's a time when it's like, yeah, it's too much food. It's too much stuff. Too much shoes, ladies. Too much. I mean, 40? That's too much. Isn't it, guys? Where do you put your stuff? 40 shoes. Yeah, amen. One man who will die later today. He'll be bludgeoned with shoes, all 40 of them by the pair, right? There are some things that are like, you know, it's just too much, but there is an extravagance that is godly. Because there's an extravagance that tries or attempts to show the worth and value. Remember in Mark 14, before Jesus goes to the cross, a woman comes in with this alabaster box of costly ointment and she breaks it and she pours it all over Jesus. And her guys are saying, and they're indignant. The Bible says they're indignant. Why? Because that money should have been used to pay the poor. How could you waste that money on Jesus 
pouring it on him. You know what Jesus said? Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done a good thing. She's anointed my body for my death. And not only has she done a good thing, but wherever this gospel is preached, people will tell this story. Guess what we just did? We just told her story. It was an extravagance that was needful. And here, the splendor of the temple reflects the glory of the God of Israel. We see his resplendence. I couldn't imagine walking into the temple and seeing, and this is not the silver and the brass and the, the gold. It would take your breath away. And that was the point. So, this morning, what does a Gentile king, a giant rock, and gold have to do with me? For that matter, who cares about a temple from 966 B.C.? As glorious as it was, can I tell you something? It is long gone. Long gone. Almost 3,000 years. Or, or, or the second temple, for that matter, which in structure was greater than that. 46 years to build that one. And in 70 A.D., completely destroyed. So, so that's great. 1 Kings 5, 6, 7, 8, talk about those things. But what does that have to do with me? And as believers, we don't have temples. We're not Buddhist. We're not Sikhs. We're not Hindus. We're not Mormons. We don't do the temple thing. So what's the deal? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the idea of the temple was to say this. And Solomon knew that, you know, you can't stuff God into a temple. He takes up eternity. He doesn't fit in a, a 90 by 30 by 45. That, that wasn't the point. The point was this. God, we know you're everywhere. But this temple sort of signifies your manifestation, your presence with your people. In a real way, the children of Israel could say, God is here. Not about the building. It was about his presence. And you see this hope of Israel from beginning to end. And isn't that really our deepest heart's desire? That we want the reality of the God of heaven. I don't want a religious, I don't experience, I want the God of heaven. I want to know that he is here, that he is near. And we see this throughout scripture. Um, Look at Leviticus chapter 26. Um, And it sort of gives us some insight here. Leviticus 26, verse number 11. God speaking, and I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And so, before we just disregard a temple that's long gone, both of them gone, understand this. The point was that God is here. It's about his presence. And from cover to cover, can I tell you something? It's about his presence. 
we just heard today in our Sunday school class uh, from Genesis chapter 3, where after the fall it says, and God was walking in the cool of the evening. And the idea was, he's looking for Adam and Eve now, but this was something they did all the time. That God's presence was there. And the God of heaven was in perfect fellowship and communion and walking and fellowshipping and enjoying Adam and Eve in perfect transparency, in perfect openness, just to be transparent and say, God, you're God and we are fellowshipping with you. And that was the glory of it. We see that in Genesis. We see it throughout Scripture. Listen to what St. Clair Ferguson said. He said, knowing God, is your single greatest privilege as a Christian. A Christian, let me remind you that knowing this God and fellowshipping with this God and having a personal relationship with this God is the greatest single privilege we have. And so this morning, I do want to talk about the temple, but not the first century one, and not the first one built by Solomon. I'm going to talk about a different temple. And this temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in a sense, Jesus is the true temple of God. If we're talking about the place where God resides, the holiday season, here's what we say. Matthew says, And call his name Emmanuel. Great name. Do you know what it means? God with us. And so there's a sense this morning, a real sense, that Jesus Christ is the true temple of God. But it's different than Solomon's. This temple is not made of stones and timber and gold and silver, it's living. John chapter 1. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there, literally tented, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. This is our Jesus. It is not in a temple made of timber and stones, but a temple made of flesh. Hebrews 2 goes on to remind us that he did not take the nature of angels. That's not what he did. But he took the nature of the seed of Abraham. Verse 17 says, It behooves him to be made like unto his brother, his brethren. He took on flesh, God with us, incarnate in flesh. Hebrews 10.5 says, A body thou hast prepared for me. And Hebrews 10.10 reminds us that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This temple is not like Solomon's temple. This temple is living. The God of heaven is with us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why he could say in John 2, Hey, fellas, destroy this temple, and three days later, I will raise it up again. This temple is living, it's also different because this temple, unlike Solomon's, is lowly. Solomon's temple, in its extravagance, its craftsmanship, its cost, it was solid, it was glorious. 
Not so with Christ. Isaiah 53, the writer is talking about the coming of Messiah. And I have to tell you, I read this this week, and it, um, it made me somewhat sad. It says, he hath no form nor comeliness when we see him. Um, there's no form of grace when Christ shows up. It's not as if when he walked among us, it was like, oh, there he is, Hercules. There he is, Adonis. There he is, Fabio and Butter. Mm. There he is, Blake Sheldon, I guess, is the sexiest man in America. Don't understand that, but it doesn't matter. That's weird, actually. That was weird that I said it, actually. <laughs> it's weird that I know that. That's all just so weird. No one said that when they looked at Christ. He came as a Jewish man. I read something years ago that said his average height was probably about 5'5", five, 5'8". Five, five, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing. This temple is living, but this temple was lowly. He was despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. We looked upon him and thought, there is no value in this. He comes in frailty, in human weakness. The God of heaven is tired. He's weary. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's weak. He's beaten. He's spit upon. He's smacked in the face. A rod is used to crush his head and beat him repeatedly. His beard is plucked out. Buffeted, he's bleeding. He suffers, and he dies. This is our temple. It's living. It's lowly. But now listen to me. More than Solomon's temple, and more than the second temple, this one loudly proclaims the glory of the God of heaven. Jesus Christ. It's the glory of our salvation. Listen to me. The gospel just doesn't make sense. Let's be honest. And it, stay with me, because this is going to sound strange. And this is how I know the gospel's true. Um, I've enjoyed the Sunday school class talking about the historical reality of Jesus Christ. I think we'll talk about for some of our special services for Christmas. But you'd have to be a fool today to not believe that Jesus Christ physically, historically walked on this planet. You, you're, you are willingly ignorant to believe that. Because we have all kinds of sources, not just biblical, but extra sources, extra biblical sources um, from, from historians who talk all about that. So, so it's not some blind faith that I just, wow, I'm just going to trust it. I don't know. It's not it. But I tell you something about the gospel. No one in their right mind would make up a form of salvation that would say, well, I I can't be good enough. I can't join the right church. I can't be religious enough. Um, there's something that I have to do. We don't think like that. 
I'm talking about Christian people don't think like that. We still think there's stuff that we ought to be doing. God says, no, that's not it. And not only that, who would ever say the way to your salvation is having a man, the God-man, die on a cross, shed his blood, and be buried. He dies as a criminal. And that's your story for salvation? Who makes that stuff up? Well, I'll tell you who made it up. God. God. And that is the gospel. And the gospel doesn't make any sense until you believe it. And then it changes you. And then you see the glory of it, that it was never in me. It was never in you. It's not being good enough or, or smart enough or rich enough or religious. It's in none of that. God says, I will save. And I alone will save. And you will have nothing to do with it. Because I will be glorified. And Jesus comes in weakness, in the flesh. And he dies. And he's buried. And for three days, the disciples are saying, we blew this. We thought this was it. And then the mother of all surprises, he gets up, and everything changes. It's the power of God. The weakness of the crucifixion becomes the power of God unto salvation. This is our temple this morning. And let me say to you, it is far more glorious than anything Solomon could have ever imagined. But it goes on. Because the church of Jesus Christ becomes now the temple of the presence of the living God. And I'm talking individually, and I'm talking corporately. This morning, our Savior came in the flesh, he lived, he died, was buried, rose again, is coming again. And he says, I will not leave you comfortless. If I go, I'm going to send the comforter for you, and he will be with you. And the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in us. We, this morning, as our Savior, are a living temple. Second Corinthians 6.16, you are the temple of the living God. And this might sound familiar. I will dwell in them, I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's talking to believers. And he says, you're not like Solomon's temple. You're a living temple. The Spirit of God is in you. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter goes on to say this. You also, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Because of our faith in the resurrected Christ, we have a lively hope this morning. We are a spiritual house because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Listen to me. This is the church of Jesus Christ. The most significant thing that God is doing in human history today is not Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump or North Korea or the Kardashians or Blake Sheldon. No. The most significant thing that God is doing in human history right now is building the church of Jesus Christ. Living stones. So, like our Savior, and unlike Solomon's, we are living and we are lowly. We are lowly. Um, church, 
don't ever get this hoity-toity idea that says, don't you know who we are? Don't you see my education, my social status, my money, my degree? Don't you? Can I tell you who you are? Let me help you with this, because Paul did. Know you not that not many wise are chosen? This is actually insulting, so just stay with me. Not many wise are chosen. Not many mighty are chosen. Not many noble are chosen. But God has chosen the base things. The things that are not. This is a declaration. God has chosen a people, not because they were strong and had it all together. God has chosen, like his people of the past Israel, weakness and lowliness and insufficiency. And the truth is, this can be discouraging. Corporately and individually, we are sinful, we are weak, we're unstable, right? I appreciate what Andrew said this morning about the church, and I, and I believe that. I believe that the church, when it's done right, we've been talking about this, is the most beautiful thing on the face of the planet, and when the church is done wrong, it's the most horrific thing on the face of the planet. And it can be discouraging. People have brokenness, dysfunction, and trouble. That's the reality of church. No plastic smiles here. No pretending. There's brokenness, and we deal with that. Not only with people, but within ourselves. I wonder, my brother, my sister, do you ever feel like a rock that's just been quarried? Or a tree that's just been felled? Is it felled, falled, chopped, sawed? I don't know, felled? Felled, you fell a tree, right? And in your own heart and life, you hear the chisel. You feel the hammer. You smart at the pruning and the cutting. And it's like, God, will I ever get this? I'm tired of myself. I'm tired of my inconsistencies and my weakness and my my complacency, my anger, my bitterness, my lust, my wrath, my hatred, my lack of kindness and love and compassion. God, will I ever get this? And the truth is, we feel it, man. We feel the chiseling and the hammering and the nailing as God is doing something in this living yet lowly temple called the church, and yet she loudly declares the glory of God. This is the glory of our Savior. He takes the beautiful messes of our lives. Here's what Isaiah says. He brings beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Look one more time at... uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we we began talking about these living stones. Peter goes on with that thought in verse number 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, speaking to us, the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, God's plan and purpose for his people Just like the temple displayed his glory, you and I now are to display the glory of God. Verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beg you, as strangers and pilgrims, 
abstain from flesh and lust, which war after the soul. Now, look at verse 12. Still the same thought, talking about you and I, the spirit within us. We are, we are lively stones being built up, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And Peter reminds us that as living stones, as the temple was to draw glory to God, our lives are to do the same. We are to make his name great. We are priests in this temple. And the priest calls others to come and worship the greatness of their God. Believer, listen to me. This truth that God in us, it should should sort of shake us up a little bit. That we are the temple of God. That where we go, God is there. That there's a plan and purpose for others around us, so that everything that we do has significance this morning. I don't care if you're staying at home with sick kids or you're at a corporate board meeting. The fact of the matter is, we are temples of God, the living God. And no matter what we do, there is purpose, there is significance. It does matter. Christian, what we do in this building matters. How we love each other, forgive each other, reconcile with one another, how we treat the least of these, it matters. How we care, how we make meals, how we take care of children, how we shovel the walkway, how we give the ride, how whatever, it matters. And it matters what we do outside of this place. Your honesty, your integrity, your hard work, your kind spirit, your compassion, your love for people, your patience. It all matters. The temple does matter. And you matter, because where you go, that's where God is. And are we reflecting his glory and his reputation and his resplendence? One more thought as we close. Look at Revelation chapter 21. The temple does matter, but I want you to see a day that's coming. Look at verse number 21 of Revelation 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as if it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. That's weird. John gets a, a vision of the future, and as important as the temple is in this presence of God, he says, you know, I'm looking down the corridors of heaven. I have to tell you something. I'm looking. There's no temple. And then he tells us why. For the Lord God, right, Almighty, and the Lamb are there. No need for the temple. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people, and he will be our God, and we shall be his children, and we'll walk with him. And all the hammering, and the chiseling, and the pounding, and the pruning will be done. Hey, if you're wondering this morning, God, will you ever complete what you're doing in me? The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. And there's coming a day with no more sound of the iron tool. It's done, brother. It's done, sister. I am complete in Christ, and I don't have to look for some temple to find him because he's there. And I'm there. And you're there. 
It's the glory of our God. And he goes on, if that's not enough. Verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun. Can you imagine that? Sun's a pretty big deal for life, for light. No need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Listen, my dear brother and sister in Christ, he will complete the work that he's begun in you. Don't be weary. There's a coming a day when the temple will no longer exist. He will walk with his children. And we will walk with him in perfect harmony and peace. Don't be weary. The splendor of Solomon's temple cannot be compared to the spiritual house that Christ is building. He's fashioning us into a perfect bride. So in the meantime, in your lowliness, in your brokenness, in in, in the hammering and the chiseling and the grinding away at the hardness of our life, be faithful. And direct all praise and honor and glory to the one who is worthy.